Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today and take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. Well, this is episode 101. It's part two of my series on Augustine versus the early Christians. If this episode is a blessing to you, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on my Apple podcast channel, Reclaiming the Faith. And also, I'd encourage you to go check out my Patreon page, patreon.com slash Baker, where you will get access to two videos each month for a uh, for $5 or more. And uh, you will get access to a video that is a breakdown of an early Christian or an early Christian document, like the latest one, which is about the early heresies in the church. And also, you'll get a, a video of an acoustic version of an original song of mine, both of those each month for $5. Also, I am blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency along with BDK and Kurt, and they put out great videos each week to edify the church. And I really want you to go check out our YouTube channels, Omega Frequency and Omega Frequency Live. You will be blessed. If you're not a subscriber, go ahead and subscribe as well. Also want to encourage all to go check out scrollpublishing.com where you'll find access to uh, all of all of David Berceau's resources among other teachers as well uh, for early Christian teaching and go check out the historic faith as well, basically where you can uh, also get teaching and support scroll publishing that way. Just an incredible website, the historicfaith.com. All right, well, without any further ado, let's go ahead and get episode 101 rolling. There are many important dates in the early church, and the year 313 is no exception. That is the year that Constantine uh, issued his Edict of Milan, which made Christianity legal. Soon he began putting uh, preferred bishops on the empire's payroll. He began building churches and cathedrals um, and you also saw a change in the way that emperors were viewed by the bishops around the world. You have Eusebius, church historian, uh, in his document of pra- in praise of Constantine, just gushing over how godly this new emperor was, even though Constantine continued to promote the sole Invictus cult. But worse than what Constantine did in my opinion, is what Theodosius did, Emperor Theodosius, in 380 AD when he made Christianity the official religion of Rome. But the year 411 is not far behind in terms of just drastic shifts in Christendom. Robert L. Holmes writes about the sack of Rome by the Visigoths and their King Alric that the year 411 with the fall of Rome was a calamity 
of staggering proportions to the citizens of the Roman Empire. Civilization itself had been shaken to its foundations. Hadn't the critics warned for years that Christians' pacifism would weaken the empire? Though church and state had worked together for nearly a century since the conversion, supposedly, of Constantine, Augustine still felt that he needed to establish once and for all that Christians could, in conscience, good conscience, assume the full obligations of citizenship, including participation in warfare. Now, this was a major task Augustine was attempting to undertake since the early church stood in direct opposition to his goals. Let me show you a few quotes from the early Christians that highlight how they felt about Christians participating in government, participating in the military and warfare, and so on. So you can begin to see that what happened, what began to happen after 411 and the sack of Rome was so contrary to the heart of of early Christendom. Here's Tertullian in his first apology around the year 198. As those in whom all ardor and the pursuit of glory and honor is dead, we have no pressing inducement to take part in your public meetings, nor is there aught more entirely foreign to us than affairs of state. We acknowledge one all-embracing commonwealth, the world. No conspiracy has ever broken out from our body. No Caesar's blood has ever fixed a stain upon us in the Senate or even in the palace. No assumption of the purple has ever in any of the provinces been affected by us. Yes, and the Caesars too would have believed on Christ if either the Caesars had not been necessary for the world or if Christians could have been Caesars. So here around the year 200, you have Tertullian showing that Christians don't take part in public meetings. They're not involved in the affairs of state. Uh, they don't conspire against the, imp the emperors like uh, Brutus did against uh, Julius Caesar. They're not trying to start revolutions in a worldly sense. They're not wearing the purple, which means they don't put themselves in positions where they're able to take lives. And it's viewed that Caesar's themselves are not capable of becoming Christians because of what they would have to give up in order to be baptized, as you'll see here in a little bit. Here's Tertullian on his work in his work on idolatry, and this is concerning military service. And I just want to let y'all know, this is going to be very different from what you hear preached in evangelical Christianity, um, because what was viewed as orthodoxy in the early church would now be viewed as a uh, basically like being a sissy. So here's what the early church, who is so willing to stand up in the face of torture and death for the truth of the gospel, for the sake of Christ and for the salvation of others. Here's what they believed about military service. He writes, but now inquiry is made about this point whether a believer may turn himself unto military service and whether the military may be admitted unto the faith, even the rank and file or each inferior grade to whom there is no necessity for taking part in sacrifices or capital punishments. There is no agreement between the divine and human sacrament, 
the standard of Christ and the standard of the devil, the camp of light and the camp of darkness. One soul cannot be due to two masters, God and Caesar. And yes, Moses carried a rod and Aaron wore a buckle and, the, and John the Baptist is girt with leather and Joshua, the son of Nun, leads a line of march and the people warred if it pleases you to spot with the subject. But how will a Christian man war? Nay, how will he serve even in peace without a sword, which the Lord has taken away? For albeit soldiers had come unto John and had received the formula of their rule, albeit likewise a centurion believed, still the Lord Afterward, in disarming Peter, disarmed every soldier. And so here Tertullian saying it's impossible for light to have fellowship with darkness, for, um, for us to serve both God and Caesar. And he says, yeah, you got plenty of examples in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament of people having faith in Christ, but we are called to follow Jesus. And Jesus, when he disarmed Peter, put away your sword, he was disarming us all. So here is the apostolic tradition of Hippolytus of Rome. Hippolytus is basically like a spiritual great, grandchild of the apostle John. So you had John discipling Polycarp of Smyrna, Polycarp discipling Irenaeus of Lyon, and Irenaeus discipling Hippolytus of Rome. So this is a work about baptism and who would be admitted for baptism and who would be rejected. And he says, a charioteer likewise, or one who takes part in the games, the Roman gladiatorial games, or one who goes to the games, he shall cease or he shall be rejected. If someone is a gladiator or one who teaches those among the gladiators how to fight or a hunter who is in the wild beast shows in the arena, it's not talking about just like hunting for food. It's talking about making a sport of it for the gladiatorial games or a public official who is concerned with gladiator shows either he shall cease or he shall be rejected. If someone is a priest of idols or an attendant of idols, he shall cease or he shall be rejected. A military man in authority must not execute men. If he is ordered, he must not carry it out, nor must he take the military oath. If he refuses, he shall be rejected. If someone is a military governor or the ruler of a city who wears the purple, he shall cease or he shall be rejected. The catechumen or faithful who wants to become a, a soldier is to be rejected for he has despised God. So that's a lot there. And I know that's kind of tough, but one of the things that he's saying about um those who are in the military, if you're a soldier already and you want to be baptized, if you want to become a Christian, then you have to promise basically that you will not kill people, even if you're ordered, 
you have to refuse and you can't take the military oath of allegiance to to caesar and if you refuse to to do what they're saying like if you say no i'm going to kill people if i'm ordered and i'm going to take the military oath of allegiance to caesar well you're you're going to be rejected for baptism he also talks about people who are governors or the rulers of cities who wear the purple, which again is the ability to put people to death, you have to give it up. You have to renounce that job basically, or you're going to be rejected for baptism. And finally he says, like, if you already have a Christian who for whatever reason decides that he wants to become a soldier, they're going to be rejected for they have despised God. And again, I know that is so different than what we've been taught but that was the tradition of the early church. Here's Origen in his work against Celsus. And this is in chapter uh, 75. And Celsus was a, a non-believer uh, who lived several years before, several decades before uh, this work of Origins. And so Origen is responding to uh, some objections that Celsus had about Christians um, in his document. So Origen writes, Celsus also urges us to take office in the government of the country if that is required for the maintenance of the laws and the support of religion. But we, we recognize in each state the existence of another national organization founded by the word of God. And we exhort those who are mighty in word and of blameless life to rule over churches. So this is a really interesting quote for a few reasons. One, you have a pagan who is saying that the lifestyle of Christians does not involve taking public office in the countries that they're in. All right. So you have a pagan testifying that Christians do not take, do not hold public office. And he's saying that basically, if we really care about the state of the world, or if we really care about our country, that we would take part in, in governmental offices. And Origen responds that, no, the practice of Christians, who those of us who are mighty in word and leadership, we don't rule the world, we govern churches. Now, just like Augustine basically changed what the church considered orthodoxy concerning issues like the depravity of man, uh, election, and so on, he also changed what the church believed about warfare. As you've heard all those quotes, the church was against it. And suddenly, after the sack of Rome by Alrick and the Goths, Augustine began formulating what is known as the just war theory. Michael Oldman writes in his article, The Use and Abuse of the Just War Theory, Christian lineage of just war begins with St. Augustine's argument in book 19 of The City of God. Augustine there considers the conditions under which a Christian might resort to force. While it is clearly better for a Christian to suffer injury than to requite evil with evil, he says, the moral responsibility of rulers who must see to the safety and security of their subjects is broader than that of the individual citizen. 
pacifism may be a desirable and, in certain circumstances, a compelling individual Christian response to violence or the threat of violence, but it cannot suffice as the growing as the governing moral criterion for a magistrate who owes a duty in charity and justice to his subjects to protect them against the designs of evil men. Because rulers are also subject to the moral law, their war-making must be guided by its proper end. Not peace per se, but tranquilitas ordinis, which means the peace that springs from the just ordering of human affairs. And since the church now rules, the church has an obligation to bring about this new peace that springs from the ordering of human affairs. And thus, the just war theory was birthed. Again, this only worked because for Augustine because in 380, August, uh, sorry, Theodosius made the legal Roman religion, Christianity. So now everyone in public office, every general, of course, the emperors, they're all considering themselves to be Christians. So now we got to find a way to convince the general Christian believers who have this long tradition of not blending God with Caesar that no, it is only loving to blend God and Caesar. It's only loving to your neighbor and to the world. And as we get into Augustine's justification of just war, I want to encourage you to think and just ask yourself, is there any uh, correlation between his teachings that God has chosen before time certain people to damn and certain people to save? Is there any correlation between what Calvin would call uh, later on in history, unconditionally election and uh, Augustine's justification for uh, just war and eventually the torturing and killing of certain people. Is it possible that those two beliefs could, could go hand in hand? Just something to consider. So let's read a little bit of Augustine in City of God. So here, here's this quote from uh, book 19, chapter 7. Augustine writes, the wise man will wage just wars as if he would not all the rather lament the necessity of just wars if he remembers that he is a man. For if they were not just, he would not wage them and would therefore be delivered from all wars. For it is the wrongdoing of the opposing party which compels the wise man to wage just wars. And this wrongdoing, even though it gave rise to no war, would still be matter of grief, would still be a matter of grief to man because it is man's wrongdoing. Let everyone then who thinks with pain on all these great evils, so horrible, so ruthless, acknowledge that this is misery. And if anyone either endures or, or thinks of them without mental pain, this is a more miserable plight still, for he thinks himself happy because he has lost human feeling. So here you have Augustine saying, I mean, this is, this is not something that we need to be happy about, but you know, it's, it's a sad thing that we have to wage just, for, just wars. It is a necessity that we wage just wars. 
Here's him again in book one, chapter 21 of City of God, when he writes about the cases in which we may put men to death without incurring the guilt of murder. Remember, Jesus is saying, if you hold hatred in your heart toward your brother, you've already murdered him in his heart. And now Augustine is saying, let's, let's make some exceptions for when you can actually murder people, all right? When you can actually put people to death without, in God's eyes, incurring the guilt of murder. So this is what he writes. However, there are some exceptions made by the divine authority to its own law that men may not be put to death. These exceptions are of two kinds, being justified either by a general law or by a special commission granted for a time to some individual. And in this latter case, he to whom authority is delegated and who is but the sword in the hand of him who uses it is not himself responsible for the death he deals. So I don't know if you caught what he just said, but basically if you're commanded by an authority to kill someone and you kill them, you didn't kill them. The authority killed them. So you're just the sword. All right. So you don't have to feel bad about killing anyone, putting anyone to death if you're commanded to do it. And accordingly, they who have waged war in obedience to the divine command or in conformity with his laws have represented in their persons the public justice or the wisdom of government and in this capacity have put to death wicked men. Such persons have by no means violated the commandment, you shall not kill. All right, so he's saying, and um, if you're obeying God's command to kill people, then you haven't committed murder. Yeah, if you're obeying Jesus's commands to kill people, then you haven't committed murder. Mm. The early Christians would not understand that logic. He continues, now check out the examples that he gives from the scripture of people receiving a divine obey to kill. Think about where these passages are coming from, okay? Here are his divine, um, his examples of divine commands to kill. Abraham indeed was not merely deemed guiltless of cruelty, but was even applauded for his piety because he was ready to slay his son in obedience to God, not to his own passion. And it's reasonably enough made a question whether we are to esteem it to have been in compliance with the command of God that Jephthah killed his daughter because she met him when he had vowed that he would sacrifice to God whatever first met him as he returned from victorious battle. Samson too, who drew down the house upon himself and his foes together is justified only on this ground that the spirit who wrought wonders by him had given him secret instructions to do this. With the exception then of these two classes of cases, which are justified either by a law, by a just law that applies generally, or by a special intimate, sorry, intimation from God himself, the fountain of all justice, whoever kills a man, either himself or another is implicated 
in the guilt of murder, all right? So unless you're ordered to kill somebody by an authority over you or whether God tells you, or if God tells you to kill somebody, um, though, then you're fine. Otherwise it's, it's not okay. All right. So uh, did you notice the problem with the examples that he, he, he cited? You notice how none of them were New Testament? You think there's a reason for that? All right, now let's get into the Donatists. This is from Scroll Publishing. The Donatists were a group of Christians who lived in North Africa around the time of Constantine. They were one of the very early groups of kingdom Christians who separated from the Catholic Church. They uh, increasingly developed a theology of separation of church and state and continued their original theme of separation from the world in general. They condemned the rest of the entire church and came to view themselves as the last faithful remnant on earth. Augustine, who lived in North Africa as well, used all of his brilliance and energy to persuade the Donatists to come back to the Catholic church. His arguments did not do that much to persuade most Donatists, but they probably played a major role in keeping Donatism from spreading further than North Africa. Now, exacerbated with his lack of success, Augustine became more and more accepting of the emperor using his power to force the Donatists back to the Catholic church. And when Augustine saw how successful force was, he came up with a theology to justify it. Although a large number of Donatists eventually came back to the Catholic church because of the emperor's persecution, there were still hundreds or thousands of them who refused to do so, preferring death to compromise. Again, that was from Scroll Publishing's um, teaching on the Donatists. And I really want to encourage y'all to go check that out as well. So this is one of Augustine's works called On the Correction of the Donatists. This is letter 185 of Augustine and it's written around 416. So as we read, notice what he is now justifying, all right? As he begins to differentiate the persecution that unrighteous people put on the church and then the way the church persecutes the unrighteous. Did you hear me? How he's justifying the way the church persecutes the unrighteous, or rather the ones Augustine decides are quote unquote unrighteous. So let's start in chapter 11. There is a persecution of unrighteousness, which the impious inflict upon the church of Christ. And there is a righteous persecution, which the church of Christ inflicts upon the impious. She, speaking of the church, therefore is blessed in suffering persecution for righteousness sake, but they are miserable, suffering persecution for unrighteousness. Moreover, the church persecutes in the spirit of love. They in the spirit of wrath. She, the church, that she may correct. They, that they may overthrow. 
She, the church, persecutes that she may recall from error. They persecute that they may drive headlong into error. Finally, the church persecutes her enemies and arrests them until they become weary in their vain opinions so that they should make advance in the truth. But they, returning evil for good, because we take measures for their good to secure their eternal salvation, they endeavor even to strip us of our temporal safety, being so in love with murder that they commit it on their own persons when they cannot find victims in any others. For in proportion as the Christian charity of the church endeavors to deliver them from that destruction so that none of them should die, so their madness endeavors either to slay us that they may feed the lust of their own cruelty or even to kill themselves that they may not seem to have lost the power of putting men to death. I just want to pause there. Do you see how he's justifying the torture of people so that they can become Christians? It's pretty blatant. Just think about that. Augustine is saying that in love, the church tortures people to bring them back to Christ, just the way Jesus wanted things to go. And I do want to highlight again one uh, sentence from that passage, just to remind you of, of what he's saying. He's saying that they, the unrighteous, return evil for good because we, the church, take measures for their good to secure their eternal salvation when they are endeavoring to strip us of our temporal safety. And it really just makes you wonder if that's what's driving this whole thing. Safety, temporal, earthly safety. Is that, is that the motivator? I mean, I get it. If it is, it makes sense from a temporal point of view. It makes sense from a worldly point of view, especially if you don't believe in the resurrection. It makes a ton of sense. If this is the only world, if this is the only existence that we have, then safety should be like the primary concern of everyone. Just so you can stay around on this earth as long as possible. But if there's a resurrection, if this is just a blink of an eye compared to eternity with Christ, then safety here should not be the primary motivator of our actions. Because we can see from Augustine, if our safety is really what's driving this, then we're going to justify a lot of horrible stuff in the name of Jesus. All right, now let's let's move to chapter 21. And what you're going to see here is Augustine saying, look, we, we should try as much as possible to teach men about Christ. But, you know, if that doesn't work, we got to torture them. He writes, it is indeed better as no one could ever deny that men should be led to worship God by teaching than that they should be driven to it by fear of punishment or pain. But it does not follow that because the former curse, the former course produces the better man, therefore those who do not yield to it should be neglected. For many have found advantage 
as we have proved and are daily proving by actual experiment in being first compelled by fear or pain so that they might afterward be influenced by teaching or might follow out in act what they had already learned in word. While those are better who are guided aright by love, those are certainly more numerous who are corrected by fear. <laughs> it's just crazy. He's saying he's he's doing an experiment to prove that, yeah, you can get, you can get some by teaching, but you're going to get a lot more to Christ by torture. And he's saying that's good. Uh, chapter 22. For who can possibly love us more than Christ who laid down his life for sheep? And yet, after calling Peter and the other apostles by his words alone, when he came to summon Paul, who was before called Saul, subsequently the powerful builder of his church, but originally its cruel persecutor, he not only constrained him with his voice, but even dashed him to the earth with his power, and that he might forcibly bring one who was raging amid the darkness of infidelity to desire the light of the heart, he first struck him with physical blindness of the eyes. If that punishment had not been inflicted, he would not afterwards have been healed by it. And since he had been wont to see nothing with his eyes open, if they had remained unharmed, the scripture would not tell us that at the imposition of Ananias' hands, in order that their sight might be restored, there fell from them as it had been scales by which the sight had been obscured. Where is what the Donatists were wont to cry? Man is at liberty to believe or not believe. Towards whom did Christ use violence? Whom did he compel? Who did he compel? Here, they have the Apostle Paul. So, let them recognize in his case, Christ first compelling and afterward teaching, first striking and afterwards consoling. For it is wonderful how he who entered the service of the gospel in the first instance under the compulsion of bodily punishment afterward labored more in the gospel than all they who were called by word only. And he who was compelled by the greater influence of fear to love displayed that perfect love which casts out fear. So the Donatists are saying, um, we should leave man the ability to believe or not believe. We're not going to try to punish people. In, we're not going to try to torture people into becoming quote unquote Christians. And uh, Augustine's like, oh yeah, oh yeah, Jesus tortured Paul. So there you go we can torture other people. See, look at the great missionary that Paul turned out to be because he was tortured by Jesus. That's how we do it, y'all. That's how we do it. That's how we create super apostles. We torture these unbelievers. It's going to work out great. Sorry for the snarkiness, the sarcasm, but it's just incredible what this guy is doing and the, and the power with which he is wielding um, his words. And speaking of uh, Christian leaders wielding uh, uh, incredible power to bring about the torture and death of people who oppose them, 
Remember how we talked about last episode that Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk? Well, listen to the way that he uh, uses the Old Testament to justify the torture of the Anabaptists. This is his exposition on Psalm 32. He writes, If some were to teach doctrines contradicting an article of faith, clearly grounded in scripture and believed throughout the world by the whole church, such as the articles that we teach children in the creed, as for example, if anyone would teach that Christ is not God but a mere man, and like other prophets, as the Turks and Anabaptists hold, such teachers should not be tolerated but punished as blasphemers, for they are not mere heretics but open blasphemers, and rulers are in duty bound to punish blasphemers. Moses in his law commands that such blasphemers and indeed all false teachers are to be stoned. So in this case, there ought not to be much disputing, but such open blasphemers should be condemned without a hearing and without defense. So let's kill these fools without a trial. No need to hear anything. Let's just destroy these people. It's great. And uh, by the way, the Anabaptists did not teach that Christ is not God, but a mere man. Just in case you didn't catch Luther bearing false witness there. Let's continue. Luther also followed Augustine's teaching on just war in his work, Secular Authority, to what extent it should be obeyed. He writes this, In this matter, subjects are in duty bound to follow and risk life and property for the cause. For in such a case, one must risk his property and himself for the sake of the other. And in such a war, it is a Christian act and an act of love confidently to kill, rob, and pillage the enemy and to do everything that can injure him until one has conquered him according to the methods of war. Only one must beware of sin, not violate wives and virgins. And when victory comes, offer mercy and peace to those who surrender and humble themselves. Therefore, in such a case, let the saying hold true, God helps those who help themselves. All right, now we're going to think about Luther's writings concerning the peasant rebellion. And to do so, I'm going to read some, again, from what David Berceau taught in, um, in his teaching on, on Luther. And you can find that uh, at Scroll Publishing, or you can find that on the historic faith um, about Luther. So go check that out. But he says, in the late Middle Ages, the gap between rich and poor had become tremendous. Although Luther sympathized with the grievances of the peasants, he was unwilling to alienate his power base, which lay with the German princes. Finally, the German peasants ran out of patience and applied Luther's teachings about avenging the wrongs of one's neighbor. They took up pitchforks 
and what little arms they could gather and attacked the estates of various nobles. Since the rebelling peasants were Lutherans, Martin Luther realized immediately that this could alienate the nobility and bring the Reformation into disrepute with the ruling class and property owners throughout Europe. Luther angrily wrote the the peasants, God has caused my gospel always to increase and spread, and now you interfere with me. You want to help the gospel and do not see that by what you are doing, you are hindering it. So Luther now threw his weight on the side of the German princes and urged them to slaughter the peasants without mercy. So listen to what Luther wrote the nobility class concerning these rebellious peasants, also Lutherans. If a man is an open rebel, Every man is his judge and executioner. Therefore, let everyone who can smite, slay, and stab secretly or openly. Remember that nothing can be more poisonous, hurtful, or devilish than a rebel. A prince and lord must remember in this case that he is God's minister, that he sins greatly against God if he does not punish and protect. If he can punish and does not, even though the punishment consists in taking of the life and the shedding of blood, then he is guilty of all the murder and all the evil which these fellows commit. Here, then, there is no time for sleeping, no place for patience or mercy. It is the time of the sword, not the day of grace. The rulers have a good conscience and a just cause. Therefore, they can say to God with all assurance of heart, These peasants have deserved death many times over. Therefore, I will punish and smite as long as my heart beats." Thus, it may be that one who was killed fighting on the ruler's side may be a true martyr in the eyes of God. Strange times these when a prince can win heaven with bloodshed better than other men with prayer. Therefore, dear lords, stab, smite, slay whomever you can. If you die doing it, Well for you, a more blessed death can never be yours. Quite a legacy Augustine left us, isn't it? But it gets worse. Luther not only instructed them, the nobles, to slay peasants. Let's think about what he wrote to the German princes about the Jews. He writes in The Jews and Their Lies... It is not my intention to quarrel with the Jews or to learn from them how they interpret or understand the scriptures. I have known all that before. I do not intend to convert the Jews, for that is impossible. So what shall we Christians do with this rejected and condemned people, the Jews? We dare not tolerate their conduct now that we are aware of their lying and blaspheming. If we do, we become sharers in their lies, cursing and blasphemy. I shall give you my sincere advice. First, remember, this is Martin Luther. 
These views do not reflect the views of Philip Baker or Reclaiming the Faith or Omega Frequency. These views reflect the faith of Martin Luther. First, set fire to their synagogues or schools and bury and cover with dirt whatever will not burn so that no man will ever again see a stone or cinder of them. This is to be done in honor of our Lord and of Christendom so that God might see that we are Christians. Second, I advise that their houses also be razed and destroyed. This will bring home to them the fact that they are not masters in our country as they boast. Third, I advise that all their prayer books and Talmudic writings be taken from them. Fourth, I advise that their rabbis be forbidden to teach on pain of loss of life and limb. Fifth, I advise that safe conduct on the highways be abolished completely for the Jews, for they have no business in the countryside since they are not lords, officials, tradesmen, or the like. Let them stay at home, for you must not and cannot protect them unless you wish to become participants in their abominations in the sight of God. Sixth, I advise that usury, uh, charging interest, be prohibited to them, and that all cash and treasure of silver and gold be taken from them and put aside for safekeeping. Through usury, they have stolen and robbed from us all they possess. Seventh, I recommend putting a flail, an axe, a hoe, a spade, a distaff, or a spindle into the hands of young, strong Jews and Jewesses, Jewesses and letting them earn their bread in the sweat of their brow. For it is not fitting that they should let accursed Gentiles toil in the sweat of our faces while they, the holy people, idle away their time behind the stove, feasting and passing gas, and on top of all, boasting blasphemously of their lordship over the Christians by means of our sweat. No, we should toss out these lazy rogues by the seat of their pants. That's Martin Luther. And um, that sounds a lot like stuff that Hitler would say. Not the early Christians. The earliest Christian document we have outside of the New Testament is called the Didache or the teaching. It's basically what uh, early Christians would use as a primer for new believers so that they could understand what the teaching of Jesus is. And it sets out two ways, it sets out the way of life and the way of death. It's basically the Sermon on the Mount. All right. And this is what it says. Contrast this to Luther's teachings and Augustine's teachings. The teaching of the way of life is this. Bless those who curse you and pray for your enemies. Fast for those who persecute you. For what reward is there if you love only those who love you? Do not the Gentiles also do the same? Rather, love those who hate you and you will not have an enemy. Notice he said, love those who hate you, not torture those who hate you. Here's Justin Martyr uh, on Christians and um, nonviolence around 160. He writes this, speaking of Christians all over the world, we who were filled with war and mutual slaughter and every wickedness have each through the whole earth changed our warlike weapons. 
our swords into plowshares and our spears into implements of tillage. And we cultivate piety, righteousness, philanthropy, faith, which we have from the Father himself, through him who is crucified. Now, it is evident that no one can terrify or subdue us who have believed in Jesus over all the world. For it is plain that, though beheaded and crucified and thrown to wild beasts in chains and fire and all other kinds of torture, we do not give up our confession. But the more such things happen, the more do others and in larger numbers become faithful. They become worshipers of God through the name of Jesus. For just as if one should cut away the fruit bearing parts of a vine, it grows up again and yields other branches flourishing and fruitful. Even so the same thing happens with us. Here's Cyprian around the year 250. Christians do not attack their assailants in return for it is not lawful for the innocent to kill even the guilty. The hand must not be spotted with the sword and blood, not after the Eucharist is carried in it. Here's Irenaeus around the year 180. The new covenant, we're new covenant people, right? The new covenant, which brings back peace and the law, which gives life has gone forth over the whole earth. As the prophet said, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall rebuke many people and they shall break their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and they shall no longer learn to fight. If therefore another law and word going forth from Jerusalem brought in such a reign of peace among the Gentiles with uh, which received it, the word, and convinced through them many a nation of its folly, then only it appears that the prophet spoke of some other person. But if the law of liberty, that is the word of God preached by the apostles who went forth from Jerusalem throughout all the earth caused such a change in the state of things that these nations did form the swords and war lances into plowshares and change them into pruning hooks for the reaping of corn, that is into instruments used for peaceful purposes and that they are now unaccustomed to fighting, but when smitten, offer the other cheek, then the prophets have not spoken these things of any other person, but of him who affected them. In the beginning, he figured forth the pruning hook by means of Abel, pointing out that there should be a gathering in of a righteous race of men. He says, for behold, how the just man perishes and no one considers it. And the righteous men are taken away and no man takes it to heart. These things were acted beforehand in Abel. Uh, these things that were acted upon beforehand by Abel were also previously declared by the prophets, but were accomplished in the Lord's person. And the same is still true with regard to us, the body following the example of the head. So who is our example? Like Augustine said, are we supposed to have Abraham as our example? Are we supposed to have Jephthah 
as our example? Are we supposed to have Ehud or Samson or Gideon as our example? Are we supposed to have Elijah or King David or Solomon as our example? Who is our example supposed to be? Is Moses supposed to be our example? Joshua and Caleb? Who is our example? In whose steps are we to follow? Well, 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 1, John writes this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for those of the whole world. By this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. I don't think that Luther should be our example. I don't think that Calvin should be our example. I don't think Augustine preached orthodoxy after 411. I think if you want to see people who walked as Jesus walked, you should look at his disciples and the disciples of those disciples. But ultimately, if you want to know who you need to follow, follow Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the embodiment of righteousness. He is the word of God that became flesh and made God's glory known to us. He is the embodiment of orthodoxy. God bless you. Oh, my Lord, have fun.